Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. Welcome to this month's episode of Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, the president and CEO of NatureServe. And I'm really excited to be here this week with Justin Cummings, who's um, a scientist and a politician. And if you know anything about my background, you'll know how exciting that is for me. And Justin and I will get into that uh, in a minute. But first, I want to let you know that Justin has a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology from UC Santa Cruz. And he was a postdoc at uh, Florida International University in uh, Miami. And then, um, because why wouldn't you? He went back to Santa Cruz uh, because it's Santa Cruz. And uh, there he went back to the university and started the um, Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program, which we're also going to talk about here in a minute. And while he was running that program, he got involved in local politics and became the mayor of Santa Cruz and is currently running for city council. Uh, again, in Santa Cruz. So, uh, Justin, thanks for joining us, and thanks for uh, all of your public service. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I, I would make one correction. I'm actually running for county supervisor. County supervisor. I'm, oh. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, it's okay. So that's great. That'll be a promotion, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, you know, I like to start with people like you got a degree in science and have been doing this kind of stuff. Like, why did you go into science? What what inspired you to want to become an ecologist and evolutionary biologist? Yeah, so as a kid, I always had a strong connection to the outdoors. Um, My parents would take me out to their friend's cabin in Wisconsin as a kid. And so got to go fishing and, you know, chasing frogs and toads around and then ended up going to summer camp, which was great to be kind of immersed in nature a little bit each summer um, because growing up in Chicago, um, while there's some access to nature, it's, it's, it's not yeah. the same. Right. And, um, and then I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, when I was a kid growing up in the nineties, there was a lot of um, marketing towards, you know, helping to save the environment, whether that was, you know, dolphin safe tuna, captain planet as a cartoon for kids, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. There was a lot of promotion around like, you know, you can help save the environment and you can help protect the environment. And then when I got into college, um, because I, I wasn't that great of a student in high school, I was really mostly focused on sports and music. Um, but I, but my parents were very much wanting myself and my brother to go to college. And when I got to college, I had my kind of freshman biology course and I thought like, maybe I could, you know, go into the field of biology, but what would I do? And my biology professor pulled me aside one day and he was like, hey, have you ever considered this as a career? And that was the first time, you know, an instructor had seen potential for me to go into this field. And after that, started meeting regularly with that professor, got introduced to another professor who became my mentor. And they started exposing me to a lot of different opportunities. And um, and through that, I just saw the opportunity to, you know, see um, the sciences and environmental sciences as a career. Yeah. And that was pretty much what, what kept me going. And I've been going down that direction ever since. That's awesome because probably when you started your freshman year of college, you weren't thinking that a PhD and a postdoc were in your future. Not at all. And uh, that conversation changed everything for you. Yep. 
Yeah, that's really exciting. So just tell me briefly, what was your uh, what was your dissertation on? Yeah, so um, I'll also kind of go into that a little bit and how I ended up at UCSC, but I was actually working on commercial fishing boats in Alaska as a fisheries observer and had applied to a number of different schools. And I got off one of my boats and my mom had called me and, and well, I called my mom and she was like, yeah, there's this couple from UC Santa Cruz that's been trying to get in touch with you about grad school. And so I called them, they flew me down, checked out the school and the campus. Uh, and I was made an offer to come to UCSC and accepted it. And, and then when I got here, I really didn't know what I wanted to do in grad school because all the prep was graduate college and go to grad school. But then once I got to grad school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Right. And um, ended up um, studying a species of invasive grass in Panama called Sacrum Spontaneum. And this grass can grow to be 21 feet tall. It's uh, adapted to fire. And so when it establishes, it grows very rapidly and excludes other mm-hmm. plants. And um, it alters the uh, successional dynamics in those areas and pretty much uh, creates a um, creates what's called arrested succession where the trees can't, the forest can't regenerate in those areas where that have been deforested. And so what I was looking at for my dissertation was there was a project that had been conducted through the Yale school of forestry, where they had planted single species plots of trees and for three years evaluated how well the trees were able to establish and how much shade they produce survivability And during that time, they cleared the grass from the understory. And then when they were done with the project, they kind of abandoned the management. And you had this um, really nice um, system where you had, as I mentioned before, single, you had plots with single species of trees and then different densities and abundances of the grass that was regenerating in the understories. Right. So, so I spent my work, my time uh, during my dissertation, trying to understand, um, how trees used for restoration suppress the regeneration of the invasive grass of the of the invasive grass in these habitats. Awesome. Yeah, the restoration of forest habitat, of course, in the tropical areas is really important too. Uh, but that's a topic for a different conversation. <laughs> Although just uh I did research in Panama as well when I was doing my dissertation. Uh, I spent some, a bunch of time on uh, Baro Colorado Island. Oh nice tropical research institute there. So we we probably tromped some of the same ground at some point. Yeah, I was in Gamboa, so you definitely had to come through oh, there to absolutely to, to get out to yeah. BCI. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit about the the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program that you helped start and run. Um, what what is that, and how does it, how does it help? Sure. So um, and when I was finishing up my postdoc at Florida International University, I'd applied for an instructor position. Uh, through the UC uh, Natural Reserve System. And although I wasn't hired for that position, one of the people on that hiring committee was Professor Erica Zavaleta. She had just received a grant from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation to start the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program at UCSC. And so she reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in applying. So I applied for that and was hired to be the, uh, the founding program director. And so moved to Santa Cruz. And really the program was just kind of you know, conceptually on paper. And my role was to work with Erica to help develop the program. And so uh, the way the program um, kind of conceptually, the program uh, was intended to increase diversity in conservation through supporting undergraduate um, experiential learning. Mm -hmm. So the first year of the program, so it's a two-year program and we recruit 
students from all over the country, targeting uh, students who are in their freshman and sophomore year, knowing that especially for um, students who are underrepresented in conservation and in, in other STEM fields, you know, the if you don't get support early on, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to drop out and change your major. So um, the students <clears throat> would come to Santa Cruz and we take them on an eight week field course around the state of California to different UC reserves kind of introducing them to field methods um, and data collection, analysis, presentation uh, in a variety of different ecosystems and also uh, exposing them to professionals in conservation. And so they could hear from yeah. people who are in the field of conservation of what was their trajectory what were the hurdles they had to overcome? That is so awesome. Yeah. So then the students go back to their home institutions. We would uh, follow up with mentoring them throughout the year and checking in to see how they're doing, have them find home institution mentors. Then in the second summer, they would come, we'd place them in internships with conservation organizations throughout the country. And then we'd end the program with a kind of three-day winter workshop really as an opportunity to bring the students back together after the second summer, but also to kind of start having conversations and trainings around like, how do you apply for a job? Yeah. How do you apply to grad school? Yeah. How do you get funding? <clears throat> and then for each of the summers that the students were in the program, we covered their uh, housing uh, and they got paid $4,000 back then. Now it's 4,400 uh, for participating and all their uh, like travel costs. Yeah. Well, that's a great opportunity for people and a great contribution to the field of conservation to bring in new people and new voices and really give them that solid grounding. Um, I think that's awesome. Um, so one thing that you may or may not talk about with these students, but which is clearly something that matters to you is being engaged in public service and taking your scientific knowledge and backgrounds into the public policy arena. And I'm sure it comes in in many different ways, but I'm a little bit curious specifically um, about like, how it affects Santa Cruz in your immediate area, how your background in conservation and biology affects your ability to be a good, a good legislator. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great question. You know, I think part of it is, you know, as scientists, one of the most important things is being non-biased, using data and being fully transparent. Yeah. And that oftentimes is lacking in government. And so I think that one of the things that I've tried to do is take those skills that I've learned um, over the years and trying to apply them to, you know, legislating. So, you know, whether it's, for example, here in Santa Cruz, um, we had, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of social unrest. And one of the things I prioritized doing was working with the African-American community to figure out you know, what are the issues between law enforcement and the African-American community and how can we try to help address them? And so we held numerous meetings with numerous groups and being able to be transparent about, you know, like, here's what was discussed in these meetings. Here's how often we met. Here's the conclusion we got to like really being able to um, be transparent about process, I think is something that I've kind of taken from the sciences and brought mm -hmm. into um kind of public policy making. But in addition to that, I mean, Santa Cruz is an extremely environmentally conscious city and we're always trying to um, kind of do new things. And uh, on, since my time being on the council, um, we've done uh, things everywhere from um, trying to address microplastics to uh, compostable um, silverware that's, that's uh, 
that you get from like fast food places. Um, we've also moved forward with building electrification. So new buildings that are now built, uh, they must, they're not going to be required to have any natural gas hookups and they're going to be um, fully electric buildings. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work to address um, climate impacts along Westcliff, which is kind of this iconic um, uh, cliff side that's a, that, that runs along the west side of Santa Cruz. So really trying to understand, you know, what are we going to have to do? And within our beach area, um, what are we looking at in terms of climate change impacts and how we're going to address those? Like, are we going to reinforce the cliffs? Um, at what point do we finally give up on putting money into reinforcement and start doing managed retreat? Um, so we've been having a lot of those conversations and I've been on the climate action task force now for going on four years and we're actually um, getting pretty close to having our 2030 climate action plan finished. And that's really, you know, an, uh, a document that kind of sets out the goals for, you know, in terms of how we can um, do our part to mitigate the impacts of climate change and reduce our carbon emissions. Like, what are we striving to do? What are our goals and, and how are we going to get there? Yeah. So that's really interesting because, you know, climate change is this global problem and we think of it as sort of almost, it's almost too big to tackle, right? Because it's the whole planet. But in fact, the council members and the mayors and the county representatives of every tiny little community in America and in the world really have to deal with the impacts, whether it's changing rainfall patterns or rising sea level or whatever. So I'm a little bit I'd actually love to have you talk just a little bit more about how, you know, a relatively small city, Santa Cruz, is like, what are the impacts of climate change on a city like Santa Cruz? Because you're not dealing with, probably in the county you are, but in the city, you're not dealing with farmers and there's probably no oil wells in your city, right? But there are other things that are happening related to climate change. I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the big thing, the issues that we're dealing with here, um, sea level rise, as I mentioned before, because we have um, the beach boardwalk, which is a major driver of tourism in our community is right on the beach. And adjacent to that is a one of the lower income neighborhoods, the beach flats where I used to live. And when we have done the studies, kind of look at where are the areas of um, where they're going to be impacted the most, you know, we're starting to see like, um, the beach flats community is going to be, you know, heavily, heavily impacted. And we're going to have to figure out at some point, you know, where do we move those people? Right. Um, I know that the boardwalk has, there's a number of pumps to kind of keep water from coming into some of the low, lowland areas, but you know, there will reach a point where do we want to keep investing in that or are we going to have to move, um, move yeah, those boardwalks uh, the boardwalk and all those other services to other places. Uh, in addition to that, as I mentioned, like erosion along our cliffs. So with intense, with intensified storms and sea level rise, um, if the cliffs erode um, far back enough, we're going to have to move West Cliff Drive potentially. And there are houses along that cliff as well. So those are going to be at, at risk. Uh, in 2020, when I was mayor, we had one of the worst fires in the history of the county. And it came within a mile and a half of the city of Santa Cruz. So just thinking about, you know, with intensified drought seasons um, and the potential for, for fires, like how do we reinforce our community so that we can defend ourselves against fire? Yeah. And then, you know, the, uh, the really big one right now is also water availability when we think about drought. And um, we've gotten a 
a fair amount of rain this year, but um, for a number of years, we've been, you know, at risk of, of being in drought. I think we did have, we were in a drought last year. And, um, you know, that's something that we're really trying to focus on. How are we going to be able to provide water in the long run? And so there's been a lot of work towards um, tertiary water treatment. And mm-hmm. so moving to, to treat our wastewater and then pump that into the groundwater so that we have um, water available for consumption. But these are the things that we're really trying to figure out how we're going to, um, you know, continue to grow as a city and then, you know, meet the needs of yeah. people to be able to stay here. So what's so interesting to me is, you know, this is one small community along the entire coastline, which is massive. And you have all of these different things and they're intertwined and all of that. Now, Santa Cruz has the tremendous benefit of having somebody who understands the science behind all of what's being talked about, whether it's climate change and the impacts on sea level, impacts on biodiversity, impacts on your parks, all of that sort of thing which a lot of communities don't have the opportunity or the advantage of having a scientist available. So I'm, I'm interested in um, like the balance between being a scientist and a politician. And like, do you get a lot of scientists talking to you and saying, Hey, how can I, you know, make sure that politicians are taking this into consideration. And at the same time, are your political uh, colleagues saying, can you explain this whole science thing to me? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's been helpful. Um, I'll give an example. So the pandemic, when COVID-19 was going to hit, I feel like that was one moment when my science background really, uh, I was able to kind of use it and use it to help communicate, you know, why this was so, why it was important for us to shut things down and why it was important to um, kind of take the measures that we did because um, we did get pushback from some of my uh, political colleagues uh, where they were saying, hey, you know, because we we were very proactive at shutting things down quickly. And some of my other colleagues were saying, this is bad for business. Like, why are you scaring people like this? this you know, we need to not make sure that we're going to have negative impacts on our business community. For me, it's like, no, we want to make sure that people don't die and that we're not, you know, we don't spread this to our entire, through our entire community and then overwhelm our, you know, healthcare system. And through that, I was able to actually connect with a number of folks on campus where there was one uh, professor who was developing his own test at the time to test for COVID. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll test we'll use PCR to detect Mm. presence or absence of the virus. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really simple way of going about this. And um, and then there's a a disease, infectious disease ecologist on campus. I was like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? And his whole thing was, you know, just figure out how you can keep people safe. And so you can get your economy up and running again. And it took a lot of pulling teeth to get folks in the county health department to talk to these people. But when they finally were able to sit sit down and um, engage with some of the folks on campus, we were able to double the capacity of our COVID-19 tests in the county at a third of what it was costing from some of the larger corporations that were offering the same services. And then we were able to get, you know, a bunch of folks in the science community to be able to kind of explain um, you know, transmission dynamics of diseases and like, you know, why, you know, covering your face and, and taking all the measures were so important. So it was really good in that scenario to be able to connect the science community to the legislative community and also to the broader community to help people really understand kind of what was going on. Right. Yeah, that's it's great. And I think about it a lot in terms of politics all across the country, whether it's state and local levels or the federal level, 
the how much value it would have to have more scientists involved in the process. Um, we're dealing with whether it's climate change or pandemics or technological issues, any number of things where having some scientific background would be beneficial to bring to the table along with all the, the lawyers and other people that are normally in the process. So that leads me, I have two questions left for you. And one of them is related to what we were just talking about, like people in the process and who's in the process. And then the other one is just straight up casual, silly question for me personally. Um, I'll come to that in a second. But first I wanted to talk about like getting people involved, whether it's, um, so when we're talking about getting people involved in politics, there's all sorts of voices that are underrepresented, right? Whether it's people of color or LGBTQIA type people or whatever, but also different career paths like scientists. And you've actually spent a fair amount of time in your career working to bring underrepresented people into, into science and conservation. And now you're uh, a person of color in politics who's also a scientist. And so I'm curious about like your perspective or your advice to people who are interested in these things and sort of thought maybe, you know, how, how can I become a scientist or how can I become a, a political leader? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be part of my background, but I want to do this. I want to be part of the solution. Yeah, I think um, I think a big thing is is being getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because you know there's <laughs> that's, often that's a hypothesis in science, right? I'm going to put <laughs> this out there, and you guys are going to beat it up for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, I think oftentimes, um, you know especially when you, you show up in a room and no one else looks like you, or you just can't relate to people who are in those uh, rooms and in those conversations, you know, it's an opportunity to just be able to sit and listen and kind of see how things are. And over time, you know, build the confidence to be able to uh, kind of speak up because, you know, there's, there's going to be the sense of imposter syndrome. Mm. And, you know, I think that just by, sitting back and listening at times, it's good to be able to kind of hear how things are going, figure out what you don't know. And then that way you can reach out to people and, and uh, get up to speed. I'd say the other yeah. quickly, what's so great about imposter syndrome is that like you were referring to it uh, as something that people who maybe walk into a room and nobody looks like them might be feeling, but I can promise you that everybody's feeling that right. <laughs> I know throughout my career, I'm always like, am I really qualified to do this? Am I the right person for this situation? And, um, you know, we're, we all, we all suffer from that. And it's important to actually recognize that and to know that because it makes it a little bit less uncomfortable when you're feeling that way to know that probably several other people in the room are having that same thought. Exactly. And that was going to lead me to my next point with, you know, trying to find like allies and people who you can work with and people who are going to help support you along yeah. the way. And, and I feel like the one nice thing about ecology is that um, although there is some competition, depending on like the institution that you're at and some of the groups you might be involved with, I feel over overwhelmingly most people um, in this field are really supportive of one another because we all have the same goal of we're trying to protect the planet for everyone. And so the more that we can find people who are willing to, to do that and join us in that fight, I feel like the more supportive we are of one another. That's a really great point that we are all on the same team. 
And it is a very, the conservation community in general, it's a very supportive and open community, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really great. Um, yeah. So my last question was, um, I just learned how to surf. And so Santa Cruz, tell me when I should come to get the best waves. Well, if you're just learning, I'd say the summer and go to Cowles Beach. That's kind of the beginner spot or uh, Pleasure Point is also a really nice spot to go to. Uh, low tides are, are really good times when uh, you'll find waves. And then if you're beyond beginner, uh, you come during the winter. And then Steamers Lane is a, is a spot where there's some pretty good waves, but you really got to know what you're doing. I'm, I'm likely to stay in the beginner zone for a while yet. <laughs> um, will you go surfing with me when I come out? Oh, I'm horrible, but uh, we can hold hands. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, Justin, thanks for coming on Conservation Conversations. And I also want to thank your uh, colleague from uh, graduate school, Dr. Max Tarjan, who works with NatureServe and helps us make sure that we've got super quality data available for people on, on the conservation status of species. I want to thank her for recommending you for the show because um, that was, was really great. It was really fun chatting with you today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me and feel free to reach out anytime. And um, yeah, if you're in Santa Cruz, just give her a holler. Sounds great. Thanks a lot.